Malachi chapter 3. <coughs> Excuse me. If you are uh, new to the church, haven't been with us over the last few weeks, we are in the book of Malachi. There's going to be a couple of our interns who are so phenomenal, except for the one that was supposed to be over here. That one's not as great. Brandon's doing an awesome job. But um, they're going to bring down Bibles. Uh, just slip your hand up if you want a Bible. We believe that it's good for you to follow along and read with us, not just believe that what we're throwing up on the screen is actually what's in there. Because, uh, if, man, if we just wanted to, we could just do all sorts of fun stuff with y'all. Okay, so uh, follow along. If you don't own a Bible, you do now. It's our free gift to you. Okay, so um, snapshot of the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. It was written about 2,400 years ago, 400 years before Jesus arrives on the scene. Okay, This letter is a gift from God to his people to call them to greater holiness because they were living in contrary lives to what God had called them to. And so this, this book is truly six disputes between God and the people of Israel going back and forth in things that God is not really happy with with Israel. He starts, though, in week one with this gracious moment of saying, I love you, I chose you, you're mine, but then here's five things we need to talk about. Okay? So we've covered issues of, of worship. What does it mean for us to worship him rightly? What does it mean for us uh, to care for the closest relationships in life, namely uh, our relationship with God and relationship with our spouse? What does, it, what does it mean for us to walk out this world, uh, in this world in ways of justice and caring for the oppressed and the hurting? These different areas where God's calling the people of God to greater faithfulness to his covenant. Today we get to talk about everyone's favorite topic, and it's money. Okay, so everyone came today thinking, I hope Vince tells me how to spend my money today. And good, because that's what I'm going to do. Okay, um, and so here's what we're going to do. We're going to have you stand up based on your income bracket. Okay, and so how tense is everyone right now? Right? And then I want to ask you a question. Why? Why? And, and I, that's, that's a legitimate thing for us to wrestle with. Because what God's argument is going to be from the entire outset of this letter and then throughout the whole Bible is, it all belongs to him. It's not yours anyway. That you are a manager and a steward of what God provides. And so if we are faithful with what God provides, it doesn't matter what you make because you could tell the whole world because then when we were to look into how do you spend the resource that God owns, that you steward, it would rise up and match that of the calling of Christ. So, so again, I know that's a weird place to start, but it's something we need to think about. And, and we're going to talk a bit about the idolatry of money today. Because it is massive. I, I, I really believe it, the more if we were to slow down and look at the biggest disputes of our day, and they're massive. It's not just this idol, but oftentimes it's primarily this idol. 
that when you boil down, why, why do they do that? Why did that happen? Why did I make that decision? I'm going to tell you because it's not just us. This has been the trajectory and the story of the people of God throughout the Old Testament into the New that money was the reason for much of the discord. Money was a reason for much of the disagreement. Money had risen to this idol amongst the people of God thousands of years before us and for some reason remains, though God is trying to root it out of his people. And so we, we flinch when it's like, wow, you can't, we can't talk about how much I make. Right? We, we, we can't delve into those things. I, I can't ask you how much you give, even though we'll ask someone if they watch pornography. And you might be saying, well, what, what? that seems like a disconnect, and, and maybe initially it seems that way in our minds, but should it? Because the Bible calls us to holiness in the area of sexual purity. It also calls you to be generous. It calls you to be generous at the level that Christ is generous. It calls you to be generous at the level that we'll look at today. And we know from James, this great book of wisdom in the New Testament, in chapter 4, verse 27, I believe, says that he who knows the good thing he ought to do it and does not do it sins. Therefore, if we are convicted by the Spirit that we're supposed to live outwardly a certain way and we refuse to, that's sin for us. In the same way... The things we know we shouldn't do that we do, that's also sin. But again, I'm just starting off in this moment to just already put us in this place of uncomfortability that I think puts us in a place to really ask the question, why does this make us feel weirder than when we yell at you about something else? Like, Why, why is this the thing? Okay, and so that's what we're going to delve into. It'll be a lot of fun. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, last thing, let me say this. Um, one of the things that we're going to see that is driving Israel, that drives us, is this belief in scarcity. Okay? Uh, it's this idea that, you know, if, if we give generously, if we live that way, what, what, what's left for us? I, I only have so much, that type of thing. Now, I want to tell you this. There are situations in our world where that is a real thing, okay? There are people in this world that truly deal with that. And, and, and some of you might be in this room right now. Like, I don't, I, can't, I don't know all everyone's financial situations, right? So scarcity exists for some people in our world. And I'm going to tell you that it exists in our world because those that have still believe in it. Those with whom God has blessed and given much. We think we don't have that much and that there's not that much to go around. That God doesn't own everything and he's not the father that provides for us. And so we hoard and we keep. And the result of that is real scarcity situations around our world. And that's not the calling of the church. God deals with this in the Old Testament, talking to Israel. And some of you might be thinking of the verse in your mind that says, well, the poor will always be among you. And yet you notice even Jesus says this, but he's quoting the Old Testament. If you read that passage in full, it says, the poor will always be among you, so Israel be crazy generous and give away your resources. It's not the poor will be among you, so well, I guess that's just what happens. It's the poor will be there, so Israel, you better be faithful like I'm faithful. You better be generous like I'm generous. And this is just more of that. And then we're going to bring it into 2020, which is pretty heavy. 
The last thing I say before we jump into the text is this is something that we are discipled into believing. You don't start with this mindset. Okay, my son Finley, he's five um, every year. So we just got uh, Vietnamese New Year just came. And so if you're not familiar with Asians in our New Year celebration, but it is massive. We love it. We give money in red envelopes to the kids. Okay. And so they'll get, Finley will get and James will get like 25 envelopes with anywhere from like five to $50 in it. Right. So like they're, they're balling. Like some of you college students are like, that's more than I have. Right. And so every time, like, we don't just, like, throw that in a bank account and not tell the kids. We tell the kids. We show the kids, hey, this is yours. This is what money's for, okay? And we begin to ask them, like, hey, what what do you think you should do with this? Where should this go? And Finley, since the first time he received that money, he's wanted to give it away. That he sets aside every month, okay, more money that he finds change when he visits some of your houses. He's stealing your change from the floor, Okay. (laughs) And he puts it in a piggy bank and it all goes to the Advent offering at the end of the year. Or he buys things for other kids that are at his school. Now, I didn't, I didn't teach him to do those things. There's just in him is this sincere belief, and I think it's this. He knows that dad's going to provide for him so he can give freely. He, he believes that his daddy, his father, me, he, I'm going to take care of him. So surely then what I have, let's give it away because my father loves me enough to provide for me every need. And so he gives freely in that way. Just yesterday I was at a wedding uh, for Rebecca and Aaron Flugrad now. Some of you know them. They got married yesterday. Very exciting. And uh, Aaron was being, uh, we had a story told about him from his sister, which then called him Airy Berry, which was cute. If you run into him, you can call him that. Um, Apparently Airy Berry, when he was seven, During Christmas, he would take one of his presents, open it, and then he would grab one of his other presents and put it in the center of the room. And the family started asking, like, well, why are you doing that? He goes, well, I want to give these ones away. And so he took these presents, and then half were for him, and then half he gave away. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, but they're kids, right? We train our kids to start thinking that's crazy. Hear me, if you think that's crazy, then we're not reading the scriptures right. Because God says, no, no, I'm still that same provider. And all the ways that Finley sees me is I have everything I need from mom and dad. That's what God says about us. That he owns it all. And that he provides every need for his people. So let's, let's break this down more if you're skeptical which it's maybe good that you are, but let's keep going. Malachi 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? They weren't being faithful on their end of the covenant. God says, I'm still here. I'm faithful always. That even in your rebellion, in your disobedience, I'm still here and I'm longing for you to return to me. Okay, there's this massive disconnect between the people of God and God himself. 100 years after the people of God, Israel, have left exile and returned to their homeland in Israel. God's like, I'm still here, and I'm calling you back to myself. And then they get into this dialogue. Return to me how? Verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you, God? In your tithes and contributions. 
You were cursed with a curse for your robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. See, what's happening in Israel at the time is there's legitimate, like, worry. There's, it's, it's not quite on the famine level, but it's on the concern level. The crops weren't harvesting as they so would like, okay? It was a, a scarcity moment. And they're thinking, well, we can't continue to give to you, God, because the crops aren't doing great. And God says, no, 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 you're missing it. You're backwards. The crops aren't great because you're hoarding them for yourself, Would you see something different? Return to me. Now, let's think about the language that God uses here because it's not an issue of they're not giving enough. It's that they're taking too much. God's saying, you're you're robbing me. You're a thief. And here's where it comes down to. We don't own anything. Our resource is not your own. It's just not. It belongs to him. And then in his graciousness and wisdom, He's dispensed that to his people, that they then would dispense it to the world in the ways that he says it should be dispensed. Now, if you owned it, if it was yours, do whatever you want, because it's yours. But God's saying, it's mine. And when you hoard it for yourself, you're like a thief. And he's not mincing words here. So if this comes across as intense, it's because God's being really intense with the people of Israel and the way that they're handling their resource. Now let me be very clear. Like this wasn't a money thing for them back then. They weren't exchanging coin. Like this was literally like agriculture and harvest and produce. They were to take and to give. In fact, there were two tithes that were due every year for the average Jew. 10%, okay, a first tenth of their produce and their harvests would have to go to caring for the Levitical priesthood and the priests that were overseeing kind of the temple and things like that. And so you have this text in Nehemiah, uh, chapter 13, verse 10 and 11, that says, I also found out, this is Nehemiah talking, um, that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? The Levites were called to live in the various cities, villages, and towns of Israel to teach the people about the word of God, instruct them in God's ways, and be a mediator of God's worship for the people. And so they did not have homes in these places. They would literally live in these villages in people's homes. And so what's happening here is because they were not being provided for as the law had stated for Israel, They're having to leave their duty and responsibility to be that for the people of God and then return to their own homes to care for themselves because they weren't eating, like just real practical, okay? And so you have Israel not giving that tenth, but in the law it required a second tithe as well. That second tithe would go towards caring for the poor, Uh, caring for various communities that were in need. And then every three years, there was a third tithe that was due. And so on average, the average Jew was due to give 23.3% of their incoming resource to serve the community. Now, how many people are stoked to hear that right now? So begin to navigate what's going on with Israel. 
the expectations given to them, and God saying, hey, listen, you're, you're distant from me. You're not doing like I ask, and you're robbing from God. Like, that's, that's just what you're doing. You're taking, and you're not giving. That's the context for Israel and what's going on with them. Again, pretty heavy stuff. Now, God's promises, if they were to respond and return to him. Remember, the context here is returning to God. It's not just faithfulness, like if you do this one thing, you're great. It's returning to God. And in the presence of God, there is a father that supplies. He says this, continuing on in verse 10, And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that I will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So God's like, return to me. Let's get this area of your resource figured out. And when you do that, here's what my promise is to you. I will open up the heavens and pour down blessing until there is no more need. Now, um, this verse has been abused significantly from people in my position, okay? To try and say, like, listen, if you just give more, God will give you more. Will bless you more. Specifically the context of what's happening here. When he's saying open the heavens and the blessings pour down, this is not like if we were to do this now, God's going to rain money from the skies. What he's literally saying is, I will open the heavens and it will literally rain on your crops. Your crops will grow food and then you will be able to eat. And the devourer here, again, this one, I'll rebuke the devourer. People have used this to say, like, God will fight your battles against Satan in this area of finances. No, he's literally talking about, like, these little bugs that would eat literally your crops, that would devour your food, Israel. I'll stop them from doing that because I'm the God that runs everything. If you're just faithful and do what you're supposed to do with the money that's mine or the, the resource that's mine anyway, here's my promise to you. Your harvest will yield, and you will be filled to your every need. Emphasis on need. Israel was not to be filled to their every desire and to their every want, but they were to be filled to their every need. This is a massive difference. Somehow we've, I think, in, in 2020, like we've, we've managed to expand need to include a whole lot of want. But that's not God's promise to you. Or to me, right? Like to us. God's promise is, I'll give you everything you need. Is that enough for us? Is it enough for you to still follow Jesus if he just gave you everything you need and not everything you want? And we don't need to get into specifics. Like, just just sit in that for a second. Is following God, loving God, knowing Christ, being in his presence, following him in mission, is that important enough to you? Do you believe, follow, trust, love him enough that he could remove every want from your life and you'd still be in? Because that's his promise to us. We've just, in an affluent society, we've just added a lot of stuff to that need bubble. Now hear me, 
This doesn't mean you can't have wants. You can't have desires. You can't buy yourself an iPod. I was going to say an iPod. I don't think those are things. But anywhere, you, like, what, you know, anything, just something nice for yourself. Like, it's not, you can't not do that. But that's not God's promise to you. But there is an expectation of his people. There's an expectation of the way that they handle the resource that God's given them. And for Israel, it was 23.3%. The incoming resource went right back out the door. Okay. And so, we bring this into uh, 2020. And we ask ourselves, because uh, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, there's not a lot more going on there. God's like, just return to me, do this, and this is what's going to happen. Okay. Um, so we, we fast forward to 2020. What does that mean for us? Have we learned our lesson from Israel? Like, are we doing well here? Are we bringing the full tithe to the storehouse, the full tenth? And we're going to get into, because some of you are already thinking, like, well, we don't, we're not supposed to tithe anymore, which, yes, I'll get there in just a minute. Uh, but our, how are we doing? And so let's just look at some numbers here. Uh, in 2015 study in America, there were 247 million Christians, people that identified as, as Christian. Now, again, right, there's debates, it's like, really Christian, we're not getting into that, but people identified Christian in America, 247 million in 2015, 99 million attended church, and that's only one time a month, okay? So 99 million, though, at least popped into church 12 times a year, that was the idea. Um, of that number, uh, 1.5 million tithed, okay, gave 10%. Uh, of their income to the church and to charitable organizations that are involved with God's greater people. Okay, so 247 down to 99 and 10 in church, 1.5 million then of those people. Um, here's an interesting stat. Someone that's making 20,000, okay, so my baristas listen up, you are eight times more likely to give than someone making 75,000 or more. Dang. If you make 20 grand or less, you are eight times more likely to give to the church than if you make 75 or more. That's backwards, okay? Um, regular attenders that attend 30-plus services a year, that's the stat they kind of gave to it. Uh, that's, uh, that average number is anywhere between 10 and 20% of that number uh, that are regularly kind of being here, consider themselves part of the community, 10 to 20% are tithing. Now, the boomers are doing it best, so if you're a boomer, give yourself a round of applause. Uh, you make up 42% of the, of the annual donations in our country to the church, but you're only 30% of the population, okay? Gen X, 19% of the donors, 27% of the population. So not quite carrying your weight, but there's, you know, statistical, you can get a little bit closer, that's fine. Now to you millennials of which I'm one too, actually. So now to us millennials. We make up 31% of the population. It's the largest group in the country right now. We give 7% of the annual donations. Now some of you might be thinking, okay, but that's like, I barely just got a job. Okay, I understand that a little bit. Millennial generation technically, based on the statistics that they use, ended for people that are 23 years old right now. Okay, so... Most of you, or most of the 23-year-olds, have some type of job. And usually it's the better tech stuff as you move into the older millennials, which would be like myself, up to the age of 39. 7%. Okay, so these are just some stats. The average giving for Christians in America, 2.5%. 
Okay, 2.5%. Now, um, in the Great Depression, okay, which if you don't know what the Great Depression is, uh, which there's probably just some, if go back and, and do some study, uh, but post-World uh, War I, in between World War I and World War II, there was a massive Great Depression that swept across the entire country, jobs lost all over the place. It was one of the like, most difficult financial times in the history of the country. 3.3% was the average donation from Christians back then. We live, based on whoever you listen to, the most affluent time in the history of any nation in the history of the world. And we give less than the Great Depression. That's a problem, y'all. Okay, and, and it's, hear me, like, and I really, hopefully you guys know me enough, this, this can sound like this massive money grab right now. Like, hey, so give money. This is not a, this, we're going to get, this is about what's going on in here that that number just reveals. Okay. Because we have to start to ask the questions of like, this just seems off. Um, if everyone that's a Christian in America, and this number uh, was the 99 million that attend church one a month, one time a month, Based on their average salaries, this number was, and you know, right, give or take, if, if everyone tied 10% in the U.S., we would have an additional, as a church, $165 billion in America alone. The church would, would have $165 billion to spend on things in this world. To put that in context, it, takes 20, it would take $25 billion, and hear me, give me grace in this. I know there's a lot of things involved in relieving hunger around the world. I get it. But just to use some numbers, it would take $25 billion to relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in just five years. It would take $12 billion to eliminate illiteracy in five years. It would take $15 billion to solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically at places in the world where 1 billion people live on less than a dollar a day. It would take $1 billion to fully fund all the overseas mission work that we're trying to fund. And then we'd be left over with a cool 100 to $110 billion to just do other stuff. We talk about this a lot. That there's this certain thought that, man, we couldn't do some radical things in caring for the oppressed in our cities, in our country. We've talked about how at the border, what would it look like if the church was united and said, you know what, we've got $100 billion that we can spend and we can build beautiful, awesome, amazing complexes where refugees can wait in, in Tijuana and the different border cities and they can be invested in because we'll hire employees that will invest in their dignity and, and cross-cultural training and, and legal systems and things like that. For, and we could, we could do that because we have $100 billion. But instead, we soak in our wants and desires. And people in our cities, in our state, our country, and our world literally live in poverty and literally die by something that is preventable as, as you taking 10 bucks out of a wallet and buying a little needle. Like, it's a problem, y'all. And we as a church, and it's not, it's not right, this isn't redemption flagstaff's problem. Like this is, the church needs to wake up to this reality. Okay, so those are just some numbers. Again, happy, happy new year. Um, 
So you might be thinking the whole point of this is uh, how do we convince you guys to give 10% here? And I'm, I'm going to say this very clearly, that's not it at all. It's just not. Now, um, there was like, and if you haven't done like an exhaustive study on money, even just in the New Testament, but if you look at the overarching narrative of how God treats resource and money throughout the Bible, I would encourage you to do it if you haven't done it before. And I was tempted to just do that. Like from Genesis to Revelation, just give you like 67 verses on how you handle your finances, uh, your finances and resource. I went a different direction, okay? But I do want to encourage you to go back and look at that, and I'm going to tell you, it's going to be summed up in this. Give generously with compassion, give sacrificially with faith, and give joyfully with thanksgiving. Okay? That, that sums up the holistic view on the scriptures. Okay? Again, that's give generously with compassion, sacrificially with faith, and joyfully with thanksgiving. And instead, I want to zoom in on three quick stories that we get here in the New Testament from the book of Matthew. Matthew 23, 23, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So what's happening is the Pharisees are like to-the-book carriers of at least their interpretation of the law. And they've surely, and they were very well off, were going to stick to the 10% that they were supposed to do. But they were doing it down to the tiniest minute detail. So if they had some mint, some, uh, some mint, some dill, and some cumin, they were literally giving an exact one-tenth of mint, dill, and cumin. Like they were following this to the letter of the law, to the very inch of it. But it was about their self-righteousness and not about the things that God truly was trying to move them to. So he calls them out in that and says, like, guys, like, yes, you're following that, but you know what you've forsaken is justice and mercy and care and love for your neighbor. Yeah, like, like good job. You, you managed to stick to that very number way to go, but you've missed the purpose of why we do that. The whole system was set up so that God would bless to be a blessing to those who have not. And so he comes hard at them, and it's a heart question for them. Why do you give? Why are you doing this? Pulling them away from this idea that there's a percentage number that you have to hit. This way God will approve of you. That's not the way it works. Now, we're gifted to live 2,000 years post-Christ when we realize that the only thing that gives us any clout before God is Christ himself. That's what he did, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, that gives us justification and new life and a chance that before God we would be deemed holy. So we're freed from this number. But the question remains for you, even if you're here and you're like, no, I do my faithful 10%. It's okay, well, why? Why do you do the 10%? Is it to earn this justification for God that's already purchased on your behalf? It's trying to pull us from this system of law and move us into a system of grace. And these last two stories um, help unpack this a bit more. About the idolatry that exists within us. About the expectations of God for his people. And the movement and goodness of God to allow us to do it well. 
So the second story is Matthew 19, verse 16. He said, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbors yourself. The young man said to him, All these have I kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Story number three from Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not. Because he was still small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down from a stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down, received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have, been defraud, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, And today salvation has come to this house. These two stories could not be more different. You have two men longing to follow Jesus, longing to catch a glimpse, longing to be in his presence. And both times, Jesus, the expectation is, let go internally of the things that are robbing you of following me. For both men, it was money. For the first man, I did everything right. I followed the law to a T. But God's like, all right, go sell everything you own and give to the poor. And it wasn't enough. Jesus wasn't enough for him to give up his money, to give up his possession. And it says he goes away sad. This is a, it's a shocking story to me about Jesus because there's this, yes, like Jesus, oh, come as you are, but it's also come as you are. But then when Jesus asks stuff of us, the expectation is us for, for us to respond as he's asked. The story doesn't go that Jesus then chases after this rich young man and says, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, okay, just sell some of your stuff. He doesn't chase after him and say, you know what, actually, I still want you here. Just give 10%. That's going to be enough. That's going to fund the building fund. We're going to be good. He doesn't chase him. He turns to his apostles he says, man, it's really hard for a rich person to get into heaven. It's not because Christ isn't sufficient. It's not because he doesn't love the rich man. It's because he knows the idol that money can be. But it's not impossible. In fact, the next verse that follows in that Matthew account is God says, yeah, with man, any, or, with man things are, are impossible, but with God anything is possible. We zoom in on this story with Zacchaeus, the wee little man in a tree, he comes down, he hosts Jesus, and we don't know what the conversation was, but obviously it got talked about. Hey, Zacchaeus, as a tax collector, he was defrauding his own people. It was a very uh, unsavory occupation at the time. 
The Jews hated them. And so in this encounter with Christ, he sells and gives away half of what he owns and then returns to anyone he's defrauded four times over. Now, Zacchaeus, we we can study about Zacchaeus beyond just what we get in the scriptures here. Zacchaeus, you can learn about in some extra-biblical historical texts. And what we know about Zacchaeus is Zacchaeus did not become a poor man. He just became a generous man. And that's the call today. It's not, it's not, hey, we all need to be poor. You need to have nothing. It's, you need to be generous at the way that Jesus calls us to be generous. The difficulty in the way we do generosity in the church today is we judge ourselves next to the person that's sitting next to us. We say, well, I give a little bit more than that family. Or I give a, I, I know what, this person gives, and I do more than that. And so what it is, it's just, let's be a little bit better than the person or the stat. So we're like, okay, well, the average church is 2.5%, or the average Christian giver is 2.5%. If I gave three, I'm on the better end of this thing. If that's the way our minds are thinking, we've already missed it. It's right, it's not about the number. But it is about being biblically generous, not culturally generous. Because our culture is deceiving. And they would have you believe that we don't follow a God who is our Father that says to you and I, I will provide your every need. They'd have you believe and have me believe that we need to hoard and keep to ourselves. They'd have you and I believe that that not only should you do that, that that is the right way to live your life. And Jesus is saying, that's not where I'm at. Where I'm at, is radical generosity. That's, that, that's where the kingdom of God resides. That's the ethic of that kingdom. And it's different than 2020 United States of America. Okay? So, um, Proverbs 11.10 says this. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Um, I've talked about this scripture here before. Um, That word righteous, that's referring to the people of God. The Zadokim in the Hebrew. It's saying when the people of God, when Israel was, was blessed, right? When it goes well with Israel, the city rejoices, right? Now, this is this is a crazy kind of idea. That for some reason. The city of Flagstaff, let's bring it into 2020, or Williams. we got some friends from Williams. Phoenix friends, okay. Yuma, if you're there. I heard y'all recently got internet, that's good. Um, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, sorry, I love you. Um, that the city of Flagstaff would rejoice if this church just got a million dollars dropped on it. Now, it's just a weird thing. Like, certainly we rejoice. I can get it to you, Anthony, he would start dancing, and he doesn't dance, right? It'd be phenomenal for all of us. But for some reason, the city of Flagstaff would rejoice because the church got a whole bunch of resource? This only makes sense if the expectation and understanding of the city was that the church was crazy generous and benevolent. 
that the city would rejoice, like when, that we would share, hey, you know what, we were able to raise this much money for this thing, that the people in the city that have nothing to do with our church would be like, this is amazing, because redemption, they give it away. They bless and seek the flourishing of those outside of them. They are blessed to be a blessing. An amazing bit of wisdom given to us from our friend Solomon. Tim Keller says this, The righteous in the book of Proverbs are by definition those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the community, while the wicked are those who put their own economic, social, and personal needs ahead of the needs of the community. We are the righteous people of God. Not because, not because of us, that's what this whole, but because of Jesus, that's who we are now. That's identity, that's who we are made to be. It's who God has recreated his church to be. Would the city of Flagstaff rejoice that abundance or blessing came to this church because they know that we would do a great job in loving the people outside of these walls. And certainly inside too. This doesn't mean we, we neglect you. Like it's invest in the people of God, care for the people of God, and in that bless the world. Okay. Now, um, last couple things. A fun exercise that I asked myself this week that was just kind of a, a heavy and difficult thing to kind of process through. Um, God gives us every resource, he's the owner, and we steward and, and we do things with it. And there's always these discussions around like, how, how much is too much? And, and I don't really like that question. Uh, I think it's just the wrong way to approach it. But I understand that we can often think that way, and so I want to address it for just a moment. Now, now, we send missionaries overseas all the time. The Western church, we're sending to Africa and to Asia. Uh, and we've said this before, right, that like now the U.S. Is, is the second largest receiver of overseas missionaries, which is just crazy to me. But we're still sending people overseas. And so, um, like, we have some friends uh, that, okay, so some of our IV students are going to be going to China, I think, this summer, right? So, are you guys doing that? Wow. Okay, so Corona has, has taken China off the map, but y'all are going to Bosnia now. Okay, that's just as safe. All right. Um, I don't even know. Actually, I'm just going off of like a war in like the 1990s. So like that, it could be crazy safe now. I, that was just me going off of an old thing. Sorry if that came across as crazy racist. And I'm so sorry. I just meant the old war. It's probably great. Tell everyone I'm sorry. Okay. Um, so... Some of y'all are going to support them in that trip. Now, okay, if Daniel gets there, and he's in Bosnia, and then all of a sudden, we get pictures back that, J that Daniel, instead of doing the work that he's been called to do, expected to do, instead, we see him uh, driving around a Mercedes and hanging out at clubs, okay? Are you going to be stoked that you sent money to him? Or will there be some follow-up questions? Like, were you, were you ministering to, like, a Mercedes car dealer? Is that the way it is? <laughs> No, you'd be like, hey, that just doesn't add up. It, right, it, it just seems to, okay, so, so when you begin to think through who you financially support and your expectations for how that missionary should live their life overseas, place that same expectation on yourself. You are a missionary to the city of Flagstaff or wherever you call home, Williams, Phoenix, Yuma, wherever it is. That is your identity. Until we're called home, then it's, it's let's have a good time. Until then, 
you are a missionary. Whatever, and, and each of you maybe have different expectations. So that's what I'm saying. Whatever your expectation for how a missionary should be living overseas, answer that same question for yourself. And I get it's different contexts, right? So it's different, like there's different questions you have to ask about what does it mean to live, uh, you know, in West Africa or Bosnia versus Flagstaff, Arizona, or you have to have a job here. I get all that. Kids go to school. It's different. So just ask the question, though. If your identity was missionary and your expectation is that for the missionary, place that upon yourself. And once you've done that, you will be wowed at how generous you can be. All of a sudden, some of this stuff will just start to make way more sense. Because right now, it feels impossible for some of us. Like, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. And some of you, that's real. Like, so I, I can't speak to every financial situation in the room. Some of you are like, legitimately, like, well, dude, I, I like barely am making rent. I get that. But most of us indulge in the want and so when we say, well, I don't have any money to give, that's true. It's because you're spending on stuff that God told you not to. First. And that's why the principle of first fruits comes forward in the scriptures. That it's not we take care of ourselves and then whatever's left we tip God with. It's this is what God has given. All generosity comes from the first fruits of the harvest. Everything that was to be given, every tithe was coming from the first fruit. In other words, what came from the harvest first, that immediately went to caring for the Levitical priesthood and the priests, went immediately to caring for the poor, and then they took what was left for themselves. It wasn't the other way around. That's how we give. So you sit down, you think through, well, this is what God's blessing me with right now as the manager of the finances that he's provided. This is what we feel compelled to be generous with. We will make do with what's left over. That's how we give. So um, if we can just do a couple slides here. Uh, I felt it important for you guys to know then, like how do we spend our money here at the church? Okay. And so just a few slides, uh, Redemption 2019 Financial Review. Here's just a few things. We'll go to the next one. Redemption Flagstaff total money in last year was $495,073, okay? That was from general offerings, special offerings, benevolence, foster care and adoption fund, flag 10, all the different pieces. That's how much money came into the church. $387,564 is what it cost to essentially do the ministry that we do to run this church, to run all the studies we do, the classes we do, the mentorship we do, to facilities, just everything that it means for us to run this. The, per the personnel, the people, we'll break down that in just a moment. Outward focuses of that $495, that's all the money that immediately left the church, okay? So about 21, 22% of what came in went right back out the door. We'll go to the next slide. So Gospel Center, this is the breakdown of what costs went to. First, facilities, 25418 uh, We have a smashing deal rental here. It's $1,000 a month for us to rent this space, so don't do anything to get us kicked out, okay? Um, to put that in context, uh, Redemption Peoria spends $6,500 a month to use the one that they're in. That's at Centennial High School. If any of you went there, you should call your administrators, Okay. Essential operations, $18,499. Uh, that is for, 
our bookkeeper and salaries that go towards running all that stuff internally that, you know, just it takes to run a business and having everything behind the scenes, website, media, etc., etc. The next one, ministry expenses. This would be, uh, again, kind of uh, all the money that's going to caring for all the ministries that we do that bless the church, serve the church, disciple the church here at Redemption, 64,210. Personnel, 235,329. We have six people that are on paid staff here that are full-time or part-time, and then a numerous amounts of random honorariums, gifts, bonuses, things that go out to different people because they just give so generously of their time. And then last year, we had a surplus of $44,108, and then that money gets returned into a pot that we save should one day God bless us with an opportunity to pursue a property or something like that, or there's just something we really feel deserves $44,000 to give to, okay? And so that's, that's what last year's was internally that stayed here. If you want to go to the last slide, outward-focused uh, state partnerships, global partnerships, church planning, and redemption grants. These are four things that, uh, that we're doing at a global level, at a central level across all of redemption. So not just redemption flagstaff, but we contribute a large amount of money to a central pot that then all of redemption across the state partners in these four ways. And then lastly, outward focus here just at Redemption Flagstaff. Advent offering 41129 We talked to you all about that already, which was amazing. Benevolence Fund, 30222 This goes to caring for the least, the last, and the lost in our communities, making sure that they have where they don't have. Uh, also housed in that fund would be some of the work that we do at some of more of the kind of at-risk partnerships that we have in town. Local support, 19920 This would be giving to navigators and to, uh, to Young Life and to FCA and to uh, organizations like Native Rise and things like that, where we just see the work they're doing. We think it's amazing. We know we can't do everything. Let's bless them. That was just under 20 grand. And then church planting, 16,238, money that goes right back out to help plant churches, not just in Arizona, but across the world to support other plants that this mission would continue around the globe. I know I said all that very fast, and there might be questions about some of that stuff, which sounds great. Please come and talk to us about that. We will give a larger rundown at our members meeting, which is coming up in April. If you're not a member, you're in luck. We are having our members meeting next Sunday. So uh, if you do want to be a member here at the church, uh, we are having our first membership class in legitimately like three years. And so if you're not a member, that's not your fault. That's on us. Okay, so um, we're having a membership class next Sunday from 4 to 7 p.m. There will be food provided. Uh, some of you are asking the question, and it's a good question, why is membership a thing? We'll talk more in depth about why that is at the membership class. Uh, but to give you a snapshot of why we believe it's important, we think the church is called to invest in one another, to be in covenant relationship with one another, and to continuously press into this. Do we think membership is a mandate? No. Do we think it's a gift to the church that we would be able to function better for the sake of our city and the work that we're doing? Absolutely. So in a nutshell, that's why we'll get into some more theological reasons and stuff next week. We'd love for as many of you to join us. Uh, there'll be, I'm sure, plenty of questions. We'll go through doctrine. We'll go through finances. We'll go through it all. Okay, so from 4 to 7 next Sunday, um, yeah, that's, that's what we'll be doing. So you'll get a bigger idea of what all that is. Back to our text, and this is where we land. I know this was a long one. We just had to get some stuff in front of you guys in regards to this area. Um, all of this to say this. We return to the text and return to what God calls to Israel, and it's this, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. 
but you say, how shall we return? And guys, listen, it's, it's straightforward. It's run to Jesus. And I know that's the answer we give you every week, and it's because the, it's the best answer. It's the best, it's the only answer. It's, it's pursue Christ. It's fall in love with Jesus. And we often say this, right? That the more you fall in love with Jesus, the more you're going to want to start acting like him. The more this generosity thing is going to make sense. Because if we remain us, okay? If it's just about, if, if we remain the main idol and we love us a ton, this stuff will never change. But when Jesus becomes the all-consuming passion and love of our hearts, he becomes the God that he rightfully is, and all of a sudden, this stuff just makes sense. Like, he's Father, he'll provide, so let's give. I have everything I need in Christ. He is sufficient, so let's give. I believe so much in his mission to bring him to the rest of the world and his story, so let's give. You see that? It's, it always starts with Christ and the gospel that he brings. And so that's the drive for us. Please fall deeper in love with Jesus. If you have questions about what that means, come and talk to us. Be around people that will point you to him. The generosity stuff will fall back on. And we'll just flow out of what that is. Give to people. I land with this, uh, this, last, this last little uh, two verses. And, and again, I know I'm keeping you along. I'm not going to break them down. I'm just going to read them to you. So hang in there. This is a quote from Randy Alcorn. He says, I've heard Christians argue often angrily that tithing is legalism. However, the average Christian gives 2.5%. Even using 10% as a measure, which... You're not supposed to. The Israelites were four times more responsive to the law of Moses than the average American Christian is to the grace of Jesus Christ. When we as New Testament believers living in a far more affluent society than ancient Israel give only a fraction of that given by the poorest Old Testament believers, we surely must reevaluate our concept of grace giving. And when you consider that we have the indwelling of the Spirit of God and they did not, the contrast becomes even more glaring. Hear me. If you fear legalism, fine. Start at 11 or 12%. And then lastly, because this has been heavy, we'll land with a joke. <laughs> Two men were marooned on an island. One man paced back and forth, worried and scared, while the other man sat back and was sunning himself. The first man said to the second man, aren't you afraid we're about to die? No, said the second man. I make over $100,000 a week and I tithe faithfully to my church. My pastor will find me. <laughs> Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace and thank you for your love. And truly, we are motivated by that grace, God, to see your mission go to the world. God, so shape us in this. It's been a long text. It's been a lot of information. But Spirit, we're trusting you. Because God, we just... We're, we don't just want to do this Christian thing, God. We want to be your people. God, like we want to follow you. We want to know the depths of your mission and your love. God, we want to be your people. So God, call us to repent where we need to, to have the conversations that we need to, to fall deeper in love with Christ, that we'd be the generous people of God that we're called to be. God, that we would see abundance come, that we might give away abundance. God, that when you bless, that blessing would not stop and end on us, but would be used, God, to bless the nations and bless the world and teach them of the goodness and the beauty of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ.
God, we thank you in Christ's name we pray. Amen.